0: Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit LifeCenterNYC.com. This happened to me today. You know, you're kind of caught up and you're, you dial along with the Lord, you're doing what you're doing, and then you realize like you're turning facing a wall or like everybody else is sitting down and you're like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to sit down. So that was me today. You guys got me good. (laughs) But, um, but, yeah, I'm just honored to, to be here today to speak today. And, and I actually I, I want to focus today on the topic of the presence of God. And uh, I spoke on this a, a few months ago, so it's kind of a continuation of, of that talk. Um, and it's something that's a core value of this house, the presence of God. It, it's a core value. Prayer and presence is so central to who we are as a church. And it's central to the mandate on this house to pray for this city and to usher in the presence of God and and we're not going to stop like like that is you know I've had such a the honor of being able to follow Bill and Tammy, Sal and Jules and I and what I appreciate about them is this like commitment to keep showing up because there's a there's this like deeper sense of God will move. He will touch hearts. He will transform the city and I I feel that that there's that there's faith for that in them, and there's faith for that in this house, and it's part of our mandate to pray and believe that the presence of God will consume this city, and and so that's what we're doing, and and I think it's so important that we talk more about what what presence is, wasn't what does it mean, um, what does the presence of God um, mean to us? Because it's kind of a a term we throw around, I think, without maybe enough understanding of what it means. Um, but before I get to that, you know. Some of you in here, probably you've had, like, um, strange jobs, right? You ever go around and, like, talk to your friends about the strangest jobs they've ever had. Um, so I've had a couple, but one that particularly stands out to me was I, uh, for a couple summers, I worked for this theme park. It's not just any theme park, mind you. Dollywood. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Somebody back there does. Some of those southerners been to Dollywood, so... For those of you internationals, Dolly Parton, very famous country music singer, and she has this theme park that pays homage to her, um, and it's called Dollywood, and it's you know full of rides, and it's kind of in the woods, and it's very you know it's fun, Um, but it's kind of a goofy place to have a job, to be honest. And uh, so I spent two summers down there. I was in this discipleship program. So I didn't just go down there to work at Dollywood, in case you were wondering. Um, But I was in this program. And to make money, you know, you work at the theme park. And my job specifically at Dollywood was I drove the trams. So there's like 90-foot trams because you show up at Dollywood, you're excited to be there, but you got to park like way the heck away because there's so many people. And so I would come and pick you up on my tram. And I would, you know... I would be your conductor, so I'd share with you about the park and like, make sure your experience is like, so warm and fun. And uh, so I did that, and all the guys I worked with, um, the men and women, they were like all 70-plus years old. So <laughs> I was like 21, 22. <laughs> and so I'm here, and I'm hanging in the breakout room with all the you know, these retired people that they just want to get in the park for free so they'll you know, drive the tram. And, uh, and I got to meet some characters. So one of the people that I got to meet was this man. His name was Mr. Mel, and I'll never forget Mr. Mel because he was—he was like, so mean. Like he was, <laughs> <laughs> and so you get to Dollywood and you got this joy on your face, and then Mr. Mel's tram drives up beside you. He's like get in here! And like it was just an unpleasant experience uh, to be in Mr. Mel's tram. And so I got the—you know—the privilege of me and him did our tram together, and so I got to meet him a little bit. And, um, and so, so one day, you know, he's just not meeting the standards of Dollywood's, you know, programmatic sort of uh, mindset. So they come and they pull Mr. Mel aside and they say, Mr. Mel, like, you can't talk to people like that. <laughs> like, you can't get in fights and arguments with the guests. That's not okay. And so I'm a part of this conversation. I'm seeing this play out. And Mr. Mel looks at, you know, his boss and, and he's straight faced and he says, what do you mean I can't talk to him that way? That's the way I talk to my cats. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> that's the way you talk to your cats? And so I did a little digging. Mr. Mel lives alone by himself with a bunch of cats. And so, so it, it was funny in the moment, but then I got to thinking about it, and I said, that's really, like, that's really sad. Like, this man has no grid, actually, for how to be kind and gentle and how to love people, he's got no grid because he lives by himself. He's in complete isolation, and all he knows is how to engage with an animal. He, I mean, it was that he, he was that, like, off the, off the radar. And so he had no grid for what they were telling him, and it broke my heart. And I said, gosh, like, this guy, like, doesn't, doesn't have a clue about even love between a person yet alone, but love from God he's got no clue. And so I just began praying for this man. And lo and behold, I was like the only person he liked. (laughs) Like literally he didn't like anybody and even like, and he would fight them still. He didn't care. But, but there was something like, there was this tenderness that, that he had towards me. And he comes up to me one day and he says, Colt, like, I want to give you, I want you to be written in my will. So if I die tomorrow, if a tram hits me, you're going to get a million dollars. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> like, but I don't want that. But that's amazing. Um, but over time, I was able to go out with him. We went to Cracker Barrel because all great, all great conversations happen at <laughs> Cracker Barrel. You know it. And I was able to share with him about Jesus, about the love of God. But I was able to model it to him because he had no model. He had no grid. And so, so I feel sometimes we, you know, we want to we share with people about, you know, about God, and, and we'll share the gospel with them, and we'll share our lives with them, and that's a great starting point. But what Mr. Mel needed was he needed the gospel, yes, but he needed his own encounter with the living God. That's what he needed, and that's what I was praying for. And so I, I was going to declare the gospel, yes, like he was going to hear it. But I was also praying, God, would you give him an experience? Would you let him feel that love because he's so void of it, and he has no relationships. And now there's one person, perhaps, that would model it, that would break through you know, his, his grid for what he has of, of life and what's possible. But God, would you give him an encounter with that love so that it would become real and he would know he's loved and cared for? And, you know, you only get to that place through prayer. If I wouldn't have started praying for the man, I wouldn't have gone a Cracker Barrel. I wouldn't have given a rip. He probably would have hated me like anybody else. <laughs> but in prayer, you begin to tap into God's heart. And in prayer, we, we pray for the presence of God, the nearness of God to come and encounter people. And I found that my prayers for his presence have increased so much just by having an atmosphere, a culture of prayer. We pray that so much for the city. We pray, God, would you send revival? Would you touch people? But we pray, God, let your presence fall in this city. Let people know that you're near. Because presence is not just a worship set. Presence is not just like a nice moment in a time of worship. It's understanding the proximity of God, the nearness of God. You can have that experience, and it can be really, like, emotional and intense. You can have that experience. It can be really quiet and still. But when you know his presence, you know he's here. You know he's in the room. You know he's near. He's not distant. And that, that, my friends, is is what we need to pray and and, and pursue and go after. Because when people know God is near, when they know he's not distant, the, the ramifications of that are massive. Um, there are so many things in culture telling people that God is far and distant, like this deist mentality that God sits up there. Either there is no God at all, but often people just believe he's far and distant and not intertwined with life. But if you give them a prophetic word and you, and you are able to, like, disclose the deep things in their heart and you're able to display the love and the power of God, all of a sudden they cry out, oh, my gosh, God is among us. He is here. And even a few Friday nights ago, we you know, the AC guy came down here And the first thing he said, the AC was broken. He said, the presence of God is in this place. And I thought, my goodness. And he said, I'm going to bring my kids here. We're going to come here. And it's like, that's a great starting point. But like times that by a million. Like that's what we need in this city. Like that's one person. But how many more? The presence of God is here. God is near. He's not far. He's not distant. And, And so you can, there's an atmosphere you can get with that in a church environment that's powerful. But it. It's a day, it, it's something that can permeate your very life. So you run into these Mr. Mel type people when you're going out, and there's something about the presence of God on your life gets on them, and they want God, and they recognize that He's accessible to them. None of this is in my notes, so I gotta like figure out where I'm going today. Um, but I wanna talk about the presence of God today. And. And, you know, the presence of God, I shared a little bit, um, fast track, like a, a month or two ago. The presence of God is one of the, like, central themes in scripture, and it's woven in all the way throughout. So you see it in the garden where the presence of God is there, Adam and Eve are walking in communion with him, and then they sin and they lose, they lose that communion, that relationship, they're kicked out of the garden, but then the whole rest of the the whole rest of the bible is in a sense god's presence him trying to come near and connect and reestablish relationship with his people that's the bible in a nutshell and jesus is the centerpiece that brings us in right relationship with god so how does his presence his presence is progressive and it comes in different times and different ways on the earth and first it comes to the people of israel so his presence comes and dwells in the tabernacle, right, that Moses, that Moses establishes. And it literally fills this tabernacle. Now, next, his presence comes in the temple, which Solomon builds. Solomon builds a temple. The presence of God comes in. In both instances, people are falling down, right? Like, it is like the religious duties and services can't be performed because the cloud, the glory of God, comes in and fills that place. But note, that's what God wanted to do. He wanted to dwell, Among his people. And he's restoring things back as they were in Eden, but even even better. So that temple, it ends um, in the time of the Babylonians. They come and they, I'm just giving you a really brief history here. The Babylonians come, they wipe out um, Judea, they take over Jerusalem, they besiege it, and they take all the captives um, to Babylon, and the Jewish people are scattered all over the place. The glory of God, the presence of God, leaves the temple right before that happens Ezekiel describes it the presence is lifted and it's not there anymore they go back 70 years later rebuild the temple nothing in the bible says that the presence of God re-entered the temple they built it it was a structure but it was there's no indication that his presence came and filled it there's no indication that the ark of the covenant was even there either so it's interesting, historically, you have now this gap where the temple's there, there's a structure, there's a building, but the presence is not the center of it anymore. And so, you know, there's a, there's this book that I read, it's pretty interesting, actually, it's by this guy, uh, Daniel Hayes, and he talks about how in that time period, right, where the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people started building these synagogues, and like all sorts of places, and, and, and kind of building these new traditions, and the synagogues, you know, they were very different from the temple in that you would come in, you'd read the Torah, you would, you know, you would pray, you would have your services and do your things, but the presence of God was not the centerpiece of the synagogue. It was, you know, it was the word, it was coming together with people, but you weren't there expecting him to show up, right? Very different than a temple. And so Daniel Hayes, he has this point. He says, he says many of the churches in the modern era – have really adopted more of this synagogue type of approach versus the temple where we come together and we're here to read the word and pray and do you know all, all good things. But do we recognize that God is in our midst, that he's present, that the presence of God is here with us? And if we don't recognize that and we don't cultivate that, we are missing a key component of Christianity. And in fact, I would propose that we will be corrupted by sin because we're not in direct relationship with the Lord. And we can't possibly fulfill all the things that God has for us to do because we're walking not in union with him. We don't recognize that he's present with us. And so even as we were singing that today, like and Jules was talking about like Christ lives in us, you know, the temple of God is now is the spirit of God now dwells in each and every one of you that have received him. So you now are the new temple right? Jesus himself became the temple, and now he put his spirit inside of you so that you can engage with him in direct access to the Father. That is a profound reality. That is crazy. Like, seriously, think about that. God in you connected to God with full access to him. So I thought, I was trying to think about all right, I'm getting to my point here. So Jesus, when Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem, um, you know, this is the temple that, as I'm referring to, it was rebuilt during the exile. King Herod remodeled it, and now it's pretty awesome. It's got, like, tons of columns. It's, like, I think it's, like, 24 football fields the size, this massive temple. And this is supposed to be the house of God, the centerpiece of Jewish life, the centerpiece, the, the connection point between heaven and earth. So I thought, what is Jesus, who is himself the temple? What is he feeling when he walks into this massive temple where everybody's supposed to be communing with God? What does that feel like? And so I thought about it a bit and I thought of an experience I had here in New York. So I don't know if you all have been there, some of you I'm sure have. On Sixth Avenue and 20th Street, there's this church, and it's no longer a church, but it's this church structure, it's massive. And it was built in 1854. I think it's called Episcopal Church of Holy Communion. And they took this church. And they turned it into a nightclub in, like, the 1970s, um, 1980s. Limelight is the name of it. And so it's this nightclub. And then more recently, it turned into a mall. And so now it's called, like, Limelight Limelight Market. And literally, they sell stuff in there, like, in this huge church with these. So I I went in there one day, and I, I was, like, at the point of weeping. Because you just see these stained glass windows, and you think, what this is intended for is not The purpose it's serving right now, and it it just did something in me, it messed with me, and and you know you see bars and things being sold in the midst of like a structure that was built for that you could worship the Lord, to pray to God, to connect and commune with Him, and so I'm like, gosh, that must be on some level what Jesus was feeling, (laughs) but how much more so, right? How much more so than than my experience there, so Jesus he comes into the temple. At Jerusalem and I and I want to read from um, specifically now he's in the temple doing lots of things so I encourage you go through the scriptures and look at what Jesus says and does in the temple it's very interesting he makes a lot of bold statements in the temple and for a good reason I believe um, so he says the statement here's what he says in the temple he says I am the light of the world he's declaring this in the temple the center place of you know Jewish thought and connection communion with God he says in the temple, before Abraham, I am. Declaring that he himself is in alignment or in, in, on the same level with God himself. He says in the temple, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. And rivers of living water will flow from their heart. He says all these things in the temple itself. Now that, to me, is Intentional. So I want to read for another story of Jesus in the temple. And this is probably his most controversial statements that he makes um, of all his time in the temple. And this story, uh, it's found in all the Gospels. And it's about when Jesus cleanses the temple. And it's during the time he's actually coming into Jerusalem. And it's called this triumphal entry is what the, the Bible refers to it as. And he's, he's coming in and saying, I'm, he's basically prophesying that he's setting up a new kingdom. And if you remember, like he's coming into Jerusalem and people are laying their garments down saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest son of David. And what they're saying is here's the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, into the temple to take over. They think he's taking over. He's going to form political sort of government and he's going to reign and rule from Jerusalem. So all these things are happening and he enters the temple and here's what he does. This is John chapter two, starting at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, other big key, he's there right before the the Passover, important point. Almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build a temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. So he's coming into the city, and one of the things he's also doing is he's prophesying through many different actions, and you'll see it later in Matthew. He's prophesying the destruction of that temple. He's saying this temple looks grand. It looks beautiful. Everybody's flooding in here. Every stone of this temple will be removed, every single one. And so it's a sobering word, and he, and he doesn't say it joyfully. He says it crying. He, he says it weeping over the city because he knows the destruction that's coming. But what he also knows is that he himself is the temple, and that something greater than the temple has come, Jesus himself, the one who is going to fulfill all the promises and all the things and the hopes that that the Jewish people had that maybe they could find or reach or connect with God through this temple, through this you know, these stone pillars, they were going to find that hope and that satisfaction and that joy and that freedom, that salvation in this man, Jesus Christ. And he's coming during the Passover. Now, Jesus is the Passover lamb. So here he is walking through the temple, the Passover lamb, the one who is going to be slain for the sins of the world. And people are just going about their day they're just doing their sacrifices. They're, they're doing their, their temple things. And Jesus rolls in and he sees the corruption in the church. He sees that it's a marketplace. And what's he do? He gets a whip out. I mean, th- this is pretty intense, right? Jesus with the whip, like, that's, you don't see, you see Jesus knocking on the door and like these like soft portraits. But Jesus with the whip, you don't, I don't see that that often painted. Um, but that, that zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. And he said, no, I'm going to cleanse this temple, not in this temple. But he was was there to establish a new temple that was his body. And it was going to be clean and whole and not corrupt and full of sin like the earthly temple was that he was walking in. So Jesus, he's saying to them, this temple is no longer the centerpiece for your religion. I am. This temple, which is supposed to be the connection between heaven and earth, the place where God and man convene, is no longer the. It's been falsely labeled this, and the reality is, I am the centerpiece. I am the one who connect heaven and earth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so he's making a bold statement right in the middle of the temple, and and as you'll see, that the leaders they're indignant by that they 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 can't they can't handle it, and they also can't understand it. They have no grid that this man is himself the connection between heaven and earth. So as I said, every, every stone in that temple is going to fall, every single one. The Romans are going to come in and wipe that thing out in, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And so Jesus' prophecy was true. But how many of you know that anything that we build in this world that's not, that's, that's not built on Christ, on the true temple, those things will not remain. They will not. And this temple is proof of it, this massive, beautiful temple all this activity, all these sacrifices, but it, in its core, it's corrupt. It's a marketplace. It's full of sin. It's full of broken people that can't possibly obtain God by their performance, by their sacrifices, by their burnt offerings. They're trying to—they're they're trying to fulfill the law and these traditions, which aren't necessarily bad, but they—they they can't obtain access to God. They can't do it. And so, I, I feel in this season you know there's many there's many of us who we've gotten there's things in our life that have been shaken up right there's temples that we've built that can't sustain anymore and they've been exposed as having faulty foundations so in 2020 you know if you if you're like me some of your temples got got um what's the word their foundations exposed and you said gosh like this will not stand this is not built on jesus and i'm talking about there's so many things you can apply. Maybe it's, your, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family, your business. Things that we build or we do, but they're not built on the temple of Christ. They're not built on the, on the, the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. And then when things shake shook last year, all of a sudden you're like, what is going on with me? <laughs> like I'm freaking out. Um, but really what, it's, it's God's grace because he wants to come in and establish this firm foundation in Christ. And point to Jesus and say, that is what you need at the center of your temple. Don't build your idols. Don't build this, this monument, this great business unto the Lord. If it's not built on Christ, it's all coming down anyway. So he, he He's purifying His church and it's and it's good. But I, you know, we can get really excited about certain church leaders or certain ministries or certain businesses or investments. And then when those things get shaken up, praise God, because our worship and our praise and our life is not built on that, and it won't. It won't carry to the next world. It won't carry beyond this age. So Jesus is saying, this temple is no longer needed, and I am now the new temple. I'm, I am the temple that you need. And so I, I believe there's three sort of things that three components of Christ, the temple that is Jesus Christ, that I want to pull out today. Um, the first one, in Christ. We have full access to God. In Christ, we have full access to God. Now, the temple itself is built up to limit access, all right? So there's there's certain courts and places that only certain people can go. Women have to go here, you know, the Gentiles, you have to stay out in this court. Like there's it's all limited where you can go and what you can access. Certainly, the Holy of Holies, the center place of the temple is only, you can only go in there if you're the high priest. So there's limitations on access for everybody. And why is that? Why can't you go where you want to go in the temple? Because of the holiness of God. Because we have sin, and we've been corrupted by sin, and we can't just walk into God's presence, not in that day and age. You're going to get killed. And it happened to some people. Those are scary verses. (laughs) They walked in the presence of God, and they weren't holy, and they were struck down. But God's good. It's not about His goodness, but it's about His holiness. And we're singing that today. Holy, holy. How many of you know, even today when we were singing about the holiness of God, you could feel the holiness of God in the room? You couldn't feel the holiness of God back in those days because you didn't have access to experience the holiness of God. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we could sit in this room today and experience the holiness of God and feel His presence. You can't get His presence without the blood of Jesus. You can't touch God because we're too corrupted, we're, there's too much sin. And on us that we can't come to the presence of a holy God. But in Jesus, full access. Full access. You don't gotta have robes, you don't gotta, you don't gotta do your you know, sacrifices of any animals. You go right to the Father because the sinless, spotless Lamb was slain for you. That is a crazy reality. In Christ, we have full access. Hebrews chapter 10, this is starting at verse 8 through 14. It says First, he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, says Jesus, here here I am. I've come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made, key word, holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. This priest is Jesus. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus is the sinless, spotless lamb. We're singing worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. Why are we singing that? Because he is the only one that could, that could ransom us from our sin. And he's here in the temple. And during the Passover, there so the, the, there's this guy, uh, Josephus. He's this Jewish historian. Do you know, take a guess, how many animals are sacrificed during the Passover? Somebody take a guess. It's in the thousands. Yeah, 8,000. Like that's what I heard, 8, 10,000. 250,000. That's what he, that's what he guess, estimates. 250,000 sacrifices made during Passover. 2.7 million people are walking around this temple. <laughs> and here is Jesus, the Passover lamb, the one sacrifice that's needed. And he's walking around the temple during Passover. And people are there performing their duties, trying to get near to God, trying to fulfill the law, do their traditions. And the one guy, he's right in their midst and they don't even see him the passover lamb and so how many of you know we can we can do this routine you know we try to get access to God through our performance we we want to look good and do the right things and like you know we have a list of all the things that we're supposed to do one thing is needed the blood of Jesus that gives us the access and that access does not change based on your performance So Jesus was coming, and he was going to cleanse this temple, but he was also going to cleanse the human heart, and that's the interesting thing, right? We are all the temple of God, and so Jesus comes, and he cleanses this physical temple, but later, he's going to cleanse our temple. (laughs) He's going to put the Holy Spirit in us and actually give us the ability to be holy because he is holy, very different than giving us a list of things to do in religious sort of actions that we have to fulfill to be holy. No, you are holy because he is holy. You have received the righteousness of Christ, not your own. And so this is, this is, the, this is like the water we swim in, but sometimes we, we forget it. Sometimes we, we think that we have to go back and you know, do stuff for God in order to get access to God. We, we think that because we screwed up this week and we did something that was not okay, that all of a sudden we can't come into his presence. That all of a sudden we're not covered by the blood of Jesus because we slipped up, even though we repented and we came to the Lord and we received forgiveness. But he's still holding that over us. That friends, that's called shame. And that Jesus came to eliminate shame, to eliminate condemnation. So if you've received the Lord and you slip up, you repent and you go right into the presence of God. My kids, you know, my wife is my wife is really good at this. I'm I'm working on it. So when my kids misbehave, right, one of the things that we're really keen on not doing is, is taking their misbehavior and and using it to create separation as, as a form of consequence or punishment. So, you know, you've know you probably all been put in timeout at some, some point, and there's that's nothing wrong with timeout. But if you, if a kid does something that's incorrect and they know it, and then you separate yourself from them, What you're saying is your punishment, your consequence for not doing things right is you're going to be separated from me. You're not going to have access to me. That communicates something to a child that many of us have experienced, and we think that that's how God operates. Because that's what we know from our our childhood or from other relationships. I do something wrong. I get put in time out. There's separation relationally. And so with our kids, we're trying to really be intentional to say, like, if you misbehave, I'm actually going to get closer to you. Like, I'm actually going to come, and I'm going to have you sit on my lap, and we're going to talk about what you did. And there's going to be a consequence, yes. But the consequence is not separation from me and you. And so so we, we have to renew our minds in this area because we, we mess up, and we let and shame gets in. And we, think it's, we might think it's the Holy Spirit. We might think it's God, you know, convicting us. But it's, it's a condemning sort of shame. And it's not God. And his blood speaks a better word. His blood declares you have access. And so I want to encourage you, when that comes on you, go back to this. Like, no, like, Jesus has declared full access for God. Full access to God. So in Christ, we have full access, my first point. Number two, in Christ we become a house of prayer. In Christ, we become a house of prayer. So I'm going to read Matthew real quick. Now, Matthew depicts the same storyline I just read to you in John 2 um, about Jesus coming in cleansing the temple. Here's what Matthew has to say about it. It's another, another take. Matthew 21, starting at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all those who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So once again, Jesus comes, he cleanses the temple. He could choose any word that he wanted to define his house, right? This is He's setting up his kingdom right now, just in a way they didn't understand. And the scripture he chooses to reference is I'm establishing a house of prayer. Could have said, I'm a house of salvation, a house of healing. All those would have been fine words, but he chose a house of prayer. In Christ, we become a house of prayer. He cleans out our temple. And we have to know that first, that we've been made righteous and holy by the blood of Jesus, because then we'll come to him. And guess what? When we come to him, he gives us things to do. He gives us things to pray. He he all of a sudden we start, we start getting his heart and we start praying his heart. And then we start becoming his heart, and he moves on the earth through our prayers. That's an insane reality. God's saying, I'm not going to move until you pray, and then I will. Now, other times he might just move, but often he won't move until you pray. And he's raising up a house of prayer. That's what this house has been called to. Every church has been called to it on some level. We specifically have this passion and this mandate to pray for the city. But no, that's what Jesus is establishing. He's demolished the old temple, and in his, it's a house of prayer. House of prayer. Now, interesting, it's, it, it's a house of prayer, and that re- I'm going to read the verse that he quotes. It's Isaiah 56, 7 through 8. And it says, These I will bring into my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations all nations now he's giving this word he's in he's in the courtyard of the gentiles so that's the courtyard where any foreigner can come they're not allowed to go any further into the temple and so i believe he's he's declaring that his house is gonna be house of prayer but he's also declaring guess what it's not just for the jews anymore there's a jail break like all can go to, into my temple. All can go and access me, and all will pray what I have them pray. They will usher in this next move of God, and and it and, and so there's something about what he's also saying is all nations are a part of this house of prayer. I mean, how fitting that we're in New York and we have so many of the nations represented, and we have this calling to be a house of prayer more than any other one, more than a lot of other places. We could we could actually see and experience this house of prayer for all nations right here in this right here in this city. So first one, Christ, in Christ we all have full access to God. Second, in Christ we become a house of prayer. Third, last point, in Christ there's extravagant praise. There's extravagant praise and worship when we encounter Jesus for who he is. You can't help but praise and worship him. So I have a couple little girls and um, my youngest is named Florence. She's nine months old and Florence um, kids are so joyful and it, it, it's fun to see Florence just learn how to crawl this week. And so she's like, I know thank you Florence clap for her um, although I'm kind of scared about it but so she realizes all of a sudden that she can crawl right and because she's just been boot scooting around and now she can crawl. And so she, start, she goes into the kitchen, and she's, like, looking around, like, oh, my gosh. And then she goes in, into the bedroom. She's looking around. Oh, my gosh. And she goes in the living room. Oh, my gosh. Like, her world just went from, like, this big <laughs> to, like, the nations in a moment. <laughs> and the joy in her face, right? She can't talk much, and she, but she just starts bouncing and, like, smiling. Like, yes, yes. The the, the possibilities are endless. (laughs) And you think about that pure joy, you know, that pure joy that kids exude and that faith. And and so think about that, and I'm going to read this. Matthew 21, this is a continuation of the storyline. Matthew 21, verse 14. So Jesus cleanses the temple, right? And here's what he does next. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers in the law saw how wo- the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, the chief priests were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, y- you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night really interesting that this is built into this whole storyline right cleanses the temple and and then what does he do he goes and heals in the temple and he heals those that aren't allowed in the temple by the law they're not even supposed to be in the temple the blind and the lame they're considered unclean jesus goes and heals them in the temple giving them access now to the temple itself and the religious people are so indignant they're so mad they don't like any of it they, they they see what he's doing they see he's calling himself messiah they think it's you know heresy but the children cry out hosanna hosanna son of david they can't help but start to praise him and what they're saying is messiah savior the one we've been looking for the temple itself is here in our midst and so the children they get it and they crowd and praise And he quotes Psalm 8. And here's what Psalm 8 says. From the lips of children and infants, you have established a stronghold, silencing the foe and the avenger. Praise is one of the best forms of spiritual warfare I know. In this city, if you're not praising, you're probably getting bad dreams tonight. Like, seriously, like, we, that, that, this house is to be a house of prayer and a house of praise and worship. And it it pushes back darkness like you wouldn't believe. And it exposes us to revelation when revelation walks in our temple. We don't get off focus off kelter when we're praising when we're worshiping cuz the presence of God becomes very real to us. And when you see the presence show up at your workplace, you all of a sudden start engaging with what God's doing, right? When you've got that Mr. Mel guy that hates everybody, but but you're praying to him and you recognize the presence of God is coming on you, you prophesy and you declare that he's going to know the Lord and you and and you pray for his broken leg and it gets healed. Like what I'm saying is like there's something about when we're engaging with God and we're praising him, we become so aware of what he's doing in a way that doesn't happen if we're not in that place of worship, that place of prayer. and so so these are so central um, to what we're to what we're pursuing here in this city. Um, you know, when Jesus came on the scene in the temple, it it looked pretty hopeless for for the Jews. For the, for the city of Jerusalem. Um, you had the Romans occupying the temple, basically. They had like a giant fortress overlooking it, watching their every move. You had corrupt leaders um, all throughout the temple. That were, I mean, they killed Jesus. They were in charge of all the money. They, were, they, they had all these rackets going on, right? Money changers, all these things happening. Things didn't look good. But in the midst of that setting, God chose to send his son. God chose to bring the real presence of God into the temple, which hadn't been there in 600 years. And when the presence of God came into the temple and established his kingdom, the whole world would be changed. And the children saw it, but the adults didn't. They didn't have the faith. And I feel in this season, there's a lot of reason that you could start to engage with hopelessness based on the things that you see. You could see friends falling away from the faith, you could see, you know, jobs, other opportunities, maybe things drying up, and, and maybe not everybody. Maybe some of you see a lot of opportunity. But I feel there's some of you where there's, there's a hopeless sort of fog hanging over you, and the Lord would say, do not underestimate my redemptive plans. Do not underestimate my redemptive plans. He brought Jesus forth in a time when nobody thought Redemption was possible. They were occupied at that temple. They were corrupted by sin. And Jesus said, "I'm going to go I'm not even going to cleanse a tip. I'm going to heal the hearts of men. I'm going to cleanse the hearts of men, something that is going to bring my presence way beyond this little temple. It's going to bring it to the ends of the earth. and I'm going to establish a house of prayer for all nations. I'm going to do it when you think it won't happen." So how much more should we be hopeful? At what God wants to do in our season, in our community, in our city, I'm telling you, we can't lose the narrative of the harvest that's coming forth in this city. And I believe it's for the nations, but I believe it's it's in this city. And we can't we can't let some of these other themes, you know, COVID and all the, all the craziness of last year, that can't be the dominant theme. The dominant theme is it's harvest time, and the presence of God is going to invade this city like never before. And we're gonna pray and we're gonna worship and we're gonna see it. Yeah, that's gotta be the posture of our heart. Worship team, could you guys could you guys come up? Um, and you know, so it, it sounds it sounds good, right, for me to say that, but how many of you know it, it already happened in this city? It's happened before. <laughs> now, now that's encouraging. So in in the eighteen fifties, right, there was a there was a move of God in New York, unprecedented. It was called the Fulton Street Revival. It was right up the street. It was on Williams and Fulton. There's a Chipotle there now that sits in its presence. <laughs> <laughs> as a marker. Um, I want to put a plaque in Chipotle that says, the prayer movement started here. Um, but maybe we'll fundraise for that. But anyway, um, so it started here. And it that revival... It was uh, six people that got together to pray. Jeremiah Lamphere was the guy that started it. And it went from six one day to 40 the next to, I don't know, 80, 100. And it just kept growing. And people would come and they would, and they would pray during one hour from 12 to 1 every – or five days a week during the work week. And there was a hopelessness in the city at that time. There was economic issues. But when they got together and prayed and became the house of prayer – these things took off. The presence of God was in those prayer meetings. There was 150 of those prayer meetings in New York alone that sprung up. And these prayer meetings went throughout the country and even throughout the world. They estimate a million people got saved. And it started with six people gathering together in a room and setting their heart to pray. God, what, what did they pray? God, come to this city. God, God, bring salvation. God, let your presence fall over New York City. And all of a sudden, God answered. And the presence came, and people got saved. And the holiness of God hovered, it said. I want to read this real quick. This is a quote from that um, somebody describing that time. It says, men and women, young and old of all denominations, met, and they prayed together without distinctions. The meeting abounded with love for Christ, love for fellow Christians, love for prayer, and love for witnessing. Those in attendance felt an awesome sense of God's presence And they prayed for specific people, expected answers, and obtained answers. A canopy of holy and awesome revival influence. In the reality, the presence of the Holy Spirit seemed to hang over them like an invisible cloud over the prayer gatherings. How many know when you pray to God, you're you're actually entertaining the idea of his presence? (laughs) Because you're saying, he hears me, and he's near to me, and he'll answer me. And so when they prayed with that level of faith, that childlike faith and praise, things shifted in the city. And let me tell you, it wasn't just in the city. They, they coined this phrase during the time. It was called zones of holiness. And in these places, like people would just would get convicted of their sin and want to give their life to Jesus and experience the holiness of God. I mean, this is crazy. So they would have ships, right, that would come on the East Coast during this time. And these ships before the sailors would even get to the port, whether it's New York or Boston, wherever port they're going to, there's a specific, a couple of these ships, people started crying out to God on the ships, saying, we need Jesus and giving their life to him. So the, the boat, the, the people in the boat are calling into the port, hey, hey, like, is there a minister that can like come on this ship? because the presence of God is here and there's like this holiness thing going on and people are giving their life to him. So you had entire ships that would give their life to Jesus before they got to the shore. Now that's the presence of God. And that type of prayer, that's what we wanna believe for, for this city. That type of presence. Because the gospel needs to go forth, but God wants to encounter people. So preach his word, but let's pray for an encounter of the heart. Everybody, could you stand up for me, please? In Acts 2, Peter goes and and he proclaims the word of the Lord. And what does it say? It says the people were cut to their heart. And they cried out. And they said, God, we repent. We repent. And Peter said, you need to repent. You need to be baptized. And they baptized thousands that day. The word of the Lord went out. But the presence of God was there. And it cut to the heart of the men and women. So, Father, we pray today, would you cut to our hearts Lord would you cut to the hearts of the men and women in this room Lord would you stir us up afresh would you give us fresh faith fresh fire fresh vision for revival for a move of God come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit And I declare you have access to the Father through the blood of the Lamb. Right now I come against shame and I declare the blood of Jesus over each and every person in this room that has received Christ. I declare his blood over you, gives you full access to the Father. I declare you've been made holy and righteous by the blood of the Lamb. You've been made holy and righteous by the blood of the Lamb. So go and be the house of prayer. So go and be the place of praise. Yeah, and I feel there's some of you in the room where it's your temple has, your earthly temple has been shaken. And the Lord's saying, Come, I want to rebuild. I want to rebuild this. That I, I want to come and take that center place in your heart. And I want to encourage you, it's not too late. If you've had things shaken in this season, if you've got doubts and fears about who God is and you felt your faith challenged, He wants to rebuild on the solid foundation of Jesus. He wants to speak to those places in your heart. And I encourage you today, do not be disillusioned by the fallenness of man, by the brokenness of leaders, by the brokenness of ministries. Do not be disillusioned because you have a perfect, spotless lamb who died for you, who won't fail you, and whose presence dwells in you.